Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to welcome Professor Shafali Milcharik Desai to come on the podcast and talk about a recent article that she wrote, which is trying to expand our vision for workers' rights and immigrants' rights. But before we get more into that, Shafali, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Yvette. I'm really honored to be here. Amazing. Okay, so to start off, I wanted to ask, how have current labor protections, including Arizona's paid sick leave law, which was passed in 2017, failed to keep people, especially immigrants, safe during the pandemic? That's a really great question, and that is the focus of the recent paper that I've written. So I want to just back up a little bit, right? You talked about this law being passed in 2017, and it was passed by voter initiative, and there was a groundswell of support, and it passed by a landslide, really. There there were a lot of people who didn't think that that would happen, but it did. And there was all of this hope around this law. And at the time, I was directing the Immigrant Workers' Rights Clinic here at the University of Arizona College of Law. And I was the director there from 2018 until uh, just recently, in the spring of 2023. And there was this hope that this law was going to provide all of these wonderful benefits for our client population, which are low-wage immigrant and migrant workers. And I use those two terms. In the paper, I actually splice the term together, immigrant, I-M slash, M-I-G-R-A-N-T. And I'll just briefly tell you why those two terms are different and why we should keep that a little bit in mind. Technically, under our immigration laws, someone who is an immigrant actually is somebody who has a pathway to citizenship, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. a migrant is someone who may have some types of documentation, like they could be here on a student visa or they could be here on a work visa. And then you have migrants who don't have documentation. So a lot of people lump everybody into the term immigrant, but it's tricky because some people have work authorization and some don't. And so in the area employment and labor in which I worked in at the Workers' Rights Clinic, that made a difference. And I know we'll get to that later in our conversation. So this law, everyone had high hopes for the law. And what we started seeing over and over again with our client population, again, low-wage immigrant and migrant workers, was that they, A, didn't know that the law existed Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Or even if they knew that it existed, maybe their employer didn't know that it existed. And even if everyone (laughs) knew that it existed, nobody was benefiting from it. So in other words, the workers were not being told that they could take paid sick leave if they asked for it or if they even, you know, if they said, I need to go take my son to the doctor, which is clearly a paid sick leave reason to have paid, you know, it's one of the, it is a qualifying reason for paid sick leave under Arizona law. They were just being told no by their employers. And what we would see is that so some people would say, OK, wow, I guess I can't leave. So they, they might not feel well. Um, they might be ill, but they'd keep working and sometimes mm. get even more ill. And in the COVID context, this was really devastating. Yeah. And so I was watching this for several years and then the pandemic came along and I thought, oh, my goodness, here we go. This is exactly why we need not just paid sick leave laws on the books, but why we need them to actually be in effect. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a little bit about in the paper, I talk about why I believe both through my work in the clinic and also through my research, why I believe that even though this law exists, this demographic of workers cannot access it. 
And the reason for that is, first of all, these are low-wage workers. Mm -hmm. These are people who absolutely 100% rely on those jobs. And they have a real fear that if they ask for something that the boss doesn't want to give them, or even risk if they uh, file some sort of a complaint or a lawsuit because they're not getting what they know they're entitled to under the law, that the boss will terminate them. And we also saw that over and over again in the clinic when people would say, you know what, I know I have this right. I'm going to go take my son to the emergency room or I am going to stay home because I'm sick. I would say eight to nine times out of 10, the employer would say, then don't bother coming back. So uh, in legal parlance, we call that retaliatory behavior, Mm -hmm. retaliation, and it is against the law. It is against the paid sick leave law. It's against all employment and labor laws. But it didn't matter that it was against the law because these individual workers had no recourse, right? The legal recourse when you're retaliated against for asserting a legal right is that you have to file either a complaint with the agency that's in charge of enforcing that law or you have to file a lawsuit. And these are people who they needed to find the next job. I mean, that was their primary concern. Also, even if they had the time, which most of them did not, to pursue a legal avenue to get back what they should have gotten to begin with, they had no legal resources to turn to because it's expensive to hire an attorney. And at the time, the Workers' Rights Clinic, which really unfortunately no longer exists at the law school, was the only place in the entire state of Arizona that low-wage workers, any kind of low-wage worker, could go to for wage and hour type of help for free on a pro bono basis. So that, in a nutshell, is why this particular demographic of workers often don't access rights that they have. When you're looking at workers without documentation, there's an additional, and and I I shouldn't say just workers without documentation. This also impacts certain workers who have documentation but have family members without documentation. So those workers, they're also afraid of being terminated because they can't risk losing the income. But they have this additional fear, which I think is a much greater fear. And this is something that has been researched by um, sociologists and others who've done qualitative and quantitative interviews. So we know that this is empirically true. They are worried about immigration enforcement, yeah, right? And mm-hmm. this is also based on what employers say to them. Employers say, hey, if you're going to complain about not getting paid sick leave, then I'll just call ICE and what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And word gets around. So if the employer only has to say it to one person and it goes through the grapevine and nobody's then going to raise, you know, and that's not just true for paid sick leave. It's true for if you're not getting paid minimum wage or overtime. So those are the primary reasons why this worker population doesn't benefit from this right that they have. There are a couple of other more insidious and below the radar reasons, I think, and uh, we really have to thank sociologist Shannon Gleason, who's done a lot of work, again, with qualitative and quantitative research here. And what she found is that there was this internalized consciousness that a lot of especially undocumented low-wage workers had, and that was twofold. One was this belief that they didn't deserve paid sick leave, that it wasn't something that they should be able to take, and and that was true for a lot of workers' rights laws. They felt that way about Mm. it. And then also this idea that they had almost bought into the idea of being the model worker, And so they wanted the boss to think that they were the model worker. They were the indispensable model worker who never was sick, who never missed work and always showed up. Mm. So I think that's also at play. Mm. Definitely that's been shown through the research that that's also at play. So those are the reasons why we're in this predicament. And I think something that the COVID pandemic showed us that maybe we weren't fully prepared for was that we can't silo ourselves, that if 
one population does have paid sick leave and that one does have access to COVID testing, does have access to the vaccine, that we actually do live in an interconnected community and we can't separate ourselves from our neighbors. And that is how COVID spread. And I really appreciate you bringing this to the fore and having us think more about what community health means. I appreciated that you were shifting away from thinking about the individual worker lens and then actually thinking about, well, what do we need to do to achieve community health? Because I think when you think about it that way, then things like paid sick leave for everybody make sense, especially when you think about a really contagious disease like COVID. Absolutely. And that's what we started seeing, not just at the clinic, of course, but nationwide, right? It was all over the news. It was everywhere because low-wage immigrant and migrant workers make up large percentages of our, what we call during COVID, frontline, yes. air quotes, frontline and essential yes. workers. And we called them that because that is what they are. They're often the people who are on the front lines, right? They're the people who cannot work remotely. They're the people who are cleaning the buildings or providing care in long-term care settings as nursing home aides. They can't do that from home. They're the ones at the grocery stores. They're the people that the rest of us had to interact with in order to get some of those basic things. We needed to get groceries or you have older adults in your household. You know, that's who is taking care of them in either at your home or in a facility. So, I think it quickly became apparent to many of us who study in this area that you have this large population of workers who we are all relying on Mm -hmm. who aren't taking paid sick leave. Mm -hmm. And then we saw that in the devastating statistics during COVID where disproportionately people of color, low-income people, low-income workers, they were the ones who not only contracted COVID, but then died of COVID because they didn't have the same access to paid sick leave, but also to medical care and testing and all of that that you mentioned. And it's a real problem. We also saw it starkly illustrated in nursing homes. Yes. I'm trying to remember the statistics off the top of my head, but at some point, I I think this might not be the case in this moment, something like 40% of all COVID deaths had occurred in a long-term care setting Wow, in the United States. And it's not surprising, right? Because you're putting together the two of the most vulnerable populations in, in the country. You're putting together the workers. We've already talked about all of their vulnerabilities, but then the older adult population that is more vulnerable to very deadly transmissible diseases. already started getting into it, but can you explain what the brown collar workforce is and why that's a more useful frame than what the media has dubbed workers, which you mentioned essential workers. And can you just talk about the realities that the brown collar workforce faces? Yes, uh, absolutely. So I think everyone used those terms essential and frontline workers to sort of valorize workers who yeah. were actually going to venture outside of their homes and risk getting infected and risk dying, especially back when treatment was not and our healthcare systems were inundated and overloaded. But the brown collar workforce is really that workforce. And it's the workforce that's typically invisible and ignored and in the shadows. That term was coined, at least in the legal literature, by Professor Laticia Socedo. And she used that term to talk about low-wage immigrant and migrant workers 
who typically work not only for extremely low pay, but they work in extremely dangerous and hazardous jobs. So think meat packing, um, think cleaning with industrial chemicals, think agriculture, lots of day laborers, you know, people who are working in conditions, you know, right now with heat hazards is a good example. Yes. Day labor is extremely, and, and agriculture. So people who are in jobs often that are essential jobs, food production, things like that, but that aren't receiving any really protections. They're not getting the benefit of workers' rights protections. The other piece of the brown-collar workforce, unlike essential and frontline, which makes it sound like, oh, they're right there in the public eye and we're supporting them. The brown-collar workforce, which is truly what it is, they're in the shadows. A lot of them, especially people who are not documented, are working in this shadow workforce where employers and the workers know that there's no work authorization. That's the documentation you need to, uh, that employers need to hire workers under our immigration laws. And because the employers are hiring them without that documentation, there's sort of this implicit and in some cases explicit agreement that, look, I'm letting you, letting you, quote unquote, I'm letting you work. You should be grateful with whatever it is you're getting, even if it's $2 an hour. And I'm not making that up. We would see in the long-term care setting, we would see women, I mean, this was really very close to labor trafficking, where they would be in many cases, brought across the border from Mexico because we have a huge dearth. We have a shortage in nursing home aides and healthcare workers in this country. And they'd be placed in a, either a group setting home or a private home and then basically paid a few dollars an hour to work 24-7 taking care of these older patients. Um, that's the brown-collar workforce. It's in the shadows. It's not seen. It's often extremely vulnerable people who have no recourse. I really appreciate you bringing up the gender dynamics of this in the end of your answer and wanted to know if you could delve a little bit more into that because I do think that is something that is undernoticed when we talk about nursing homes, for example, that's disproportionately immigrant women, women of color. How are they reflected in the brown collar workforce? And can you speak to the gender dynamics? Absolutely. And this kind of dovetails with some. Ruth Milkman is a sociologist who's done a lot of work in, in this area. And one of the things um, that she has spent years researching and painstakingly detailing is that this work, this brown collar work, is work that most native born Americans don't want to do. Mm. So in some senses, it really is essential. We need these workers to be doing these jobs because we don't have native-born workers who want to do them, and we need the jobs to be filled. But we, at the same time, don't want to recognize the labor that they're providing. And this is very much true for immigrant and migrant women. So about a third of all nursing home aides, I should say aides, so long-term care aides, so that covers both nursing home settings and also individual private home settings. Almost a third of them are immigrant or migrant women. Mm -hmm. And... um, They're doing these jobs that we cannot find native-born workers to do. And I recently did a qualitative project where we interviewed nursing home aides who were former clients of the Workers' Rights Clinic. And what we found is most of them received no training at all. And this is a job in which it's dangerous. It's hazardous. If you don't pick someone up in the right way, you could really hurt yourself. And we found that many of these women would get hurt. And then, of course, they would never get paid sick leave. And this happened during COVID. And these women described uh, in really horrific detail how they would see nursing home patients get ill from COVID and some die from COVID. And there was no sense of like, oh, you're sick 
you should stay home, you shouldn't come into work. So I'm talking about the long-term care industry, but this is true in other industries. The cleaning industry is another industry where you see disproportionate amounts of immigrant and migrant women, again, working in jobs that native-born workers don't want. So these women have this double whammy, right? They have, well, triple, really. They're called brown-collar workforce. They're all brown and black women, so they're people of color. They're also uh, have this, in many cases, attenuated immigration status or non-status. And then they have this gendered status. And this is work. So like caregiving, cleaning, and everything kind of falls within this erstwhile domestic realm, is work that we kind of think of as free work or invisible, at the very least, invisible work, invisible labor um, that these women are engaged in. And we heard that over and over in these interviews that we did, where the women would say, the employer would say, well, can't you just stay an hour longer because my father needs you or my mother needs you to do this? And it was interesting because these women would feel very much like they were uh, part of the family or they would feel like the child taking care of the parent, but it wasn't their parent. Mm -hmm. This was their economic livelihood. But there was that dual role. And so women, absolutely, especially immigrant migrant women, uh, are put in that role. And then when they ask Many of these women said, I felt bad asking for more money because I would do this for my own parents. Um, so, yeah, it's very tricky. It's very tricky to even get to the point where you think, oh, no, I really do deserve minimum wage or overtime if I'm working more than, you know, 40 hours a week. And many of these women were working far more than that. Yeah, I appreciate you going into those dynamics because... My mom is someone who cleans houses and also has cared for the elderly. So um, I've definitely seen those dynamics growing up. I think women are socialized into caring roles. And that is also happening in the workforce, even though, as you're saying, it's really meant to be an economic relationship where you have all the standard rights that every other worker has. It's not that because you're a woman, like this is your role in life is to work overtime and not get paid. Um, I appreciate you teasing out those dynamics. Yeah, we used to see it all the time at the clinic. How would labor law change if lawmakers understood collective well-being in the way that you proposed in your article? So one of the big problems, right, that we've been talking about is that this workforce is in the shadows. They're in a place where they don't they don't feel like they have the wherewithal or they don't have the power, or they don't have the voice to ask for these workers' rights. And so what we really, I think, need is policy and legislation that would bring these workers into what I'm going to call the kind of the formal workplace, not mm. the shadow workforce, but the formal workforce where everything is above board, where employers know that they need to provide the rights that are required by law or they're going to face some sort of penalty for that. Now, the only, you know, the only direct way to do that is to change immigration law and policy. Yeah. And, and I think if you're a realist, and I am, that's not going to happen anytime soon. That would be the most direct route. And I'll just give you one example of a thought that I've had about that that's not in the paper, but something I've been thinking about quite a bit, especially in the long-term care setting, is we need to be more creative and imaginative about work visas. And yes. It, right? Now, they're not a blanket solution at all because right now our farm worker visas is a devastating program for the workers. They're tied to one employer, so... Even though they're here 
lawfully, and even though the employers are hiring them lawfully because they have work authorization to work, they're still not going to complain about rights that they're not getting because if they do, they're out of a job because mm-hmm. that employer is going to retaliate and terminate them. They're stuck with that employer. There are other systems that other countries mm-hmm. use where you can actually go from employer to employer. I think that that would be a better system. And that's something that I'd like to do a little more research into is how that works in other countries. Because if you, let's look at long-term care. We are looking at a shortage of, I think this number is correct. It's like a hundred million. It's a giant number. Uh, Long-term care workers in the next decade. So, you know, this is going to be our parents. Eventually it's going to be us who's going to need this care, right? Everyone, all of us know someone who's going to need that care eventually if they don't already need it. So we need to bring those workers and we have a workforce south of our border that wants to engage in this work, that can and is ready and able and willing to engage in this work. We need to find a way to get them here. And that's in everyone's interest. Talk about community-based health. I mean, everybody is going to benefit by doing that, by creating, I think, an immigration visa system, or maybe a worker visa system, where everyone can benefit from that situation. Okay, but... We all know that probably immigration law policy isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So I have some other thoughts, you know, because I think there are other ways that we can get at it. Will it be as effective? No. But there's some other things I think that can be done. And I think primary among them is educating employers. Mm -hmm. So many of the employers that we would run up against at the clinic really didn't know about paid sick leave. Or if they knew about it, they didn't understand the benefit they didn't understand, mm. for example, that they were the primary beneficiaries of paid sick leave. Mm. Uh, there have been numerous studies done, one that was cited in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago, that showed that American companies and corporations lose billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars annually on a yearly basis from workers who show up to work sick. Mm. Why? Well, first of all, there's a productivity cost mm-hmm. when somebody is at work and really can't function. They're also going to get other workers sick. In the restaurant and food industry, yeah. it's a really bad idea because then you're going to get a bunch of customers sick also. And norovirus outbreaks happen all the time in the restaurant industry because workers show up to work sick and then pass it on to everybody else. So I think most employers don't understand that. Most, well, most employers, especially small businesses, right, they're thinking, well, if I pay this person to not show up, then I have to pay someone else to show up to take over for them while they're gone. So I'm double paying and I'm a small business. I can't afford that. What they don't see is the long-term cost of forcing that sick worker to stay at work and keep working. Again, long-term care industry is a great example and under COVID where you're losing so much in terms of productivity and eventually dollars because, well, first of all, you're losing your staff because they're all getting sick with COVID and some of them are dying of COVID, but you're also losing your patients, you know? Um, And then of course, there's all the liability that comes with that. There were several lawsuits that were filed against long-term care facilities. So that's one idea is, you know, is there a way that employers could be educated? And I really do think that this would be I mean, this could be done through the private sector, but it also could certainly be done by agencies that are supposed to be enforcing paid sick leave laws mm-hmm. to make sure their employers understand. And, and if the employers then understand it, then they can communicate to the employees why it's so important for the employees to ask for it in the first place. But that's not happening. In the interviews that we did, the women said uh, that they didn't know about paid sick leave, but their employers didn't know either, and that there was never a conversation about it. Um There are other systems that I talk about in this particular paper, the Opening the Pandemic Portal, 
that would be more conducive to ensuring that brown collar workers get access to paid sick leave. And one of them, again, but it's like immigration reform is probably not likely to happen anytime soon, it, which that would be having a state sponsored system. So either, and individually there are states that do that. California, for example, does have a system where you don't ask for paid sick leave from your employer. You get paid for it through the state, mm. right? The state through taxation, you know, has a fund that workers get paid out. That feels more realistic than educating the employers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's some, depending on where you are, yeah, true. that might be the case. And California is doing it. And there, there is a handful of other places in the U.S. that do it. It's like nationalized health care, but it's statewide. And then the other solution, of course, would be to have a nationalized paid sick leave law, which we've never had except for a second during COVID. Oh. So do you remember the Families First uh, Coronavirus Relief Act, FICRA? It, mm-hmm. was, it was short. <laughs> I think it was like nine months or something. But part of that law, what it did, that law was a nod towards, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Everybody's getting sick with this deadly virus. We need to give people an opportunity to not show up. And so FICRA did that. And the way it did it, and it's, this is very interesting. Ficker said, okay, you still have to ask your employer for the paid sick leave. And you had up to two weeks because we knew by that point that that's how long you needed to probably get over COVID. Um, and you asked your employer. What the employer was supposed to then do is convey that information, like the worker's name and their information to the IRS. And the employer was then supposed to get a tax credit for mm. every employee that they paid while they were out sick for COVID reasons, COVID-related reasons. So it's, a, it's an interesting idea. It's a good thought, actually. Lots of uh, legal tax scholars have talked about how this is a good way to do this, to do a nationalized system. The problem with this is that what we saw happening is that employers of undocumented folks, the last thing they wanted to do was transmit any information to the IRS. Because the IRS, so when you have an undocumented worker, another reason why some employers like to hire undocumented workers Mm -hmm. is they don't pay taxes on them. They don't pay FICA. You know, all of those employment taxes that employers are supposed to pay, they're not paying on those folks Mm -hmm. for the most part. And so they don't want to have anything to do with the IRS because they don't want to put someone on the IRS's radar who, you know, they didn't want that situation. So immigrant migrant workers were still out of luck during FICRA, even those who knew about it through our clinic, even those who asked their employers for it. And then the other way to do it, of course, is not like how Ficker did it, but to just have a national paid sick leave policy where everybody gets to take a certain amount and it's a tax-based system. Again, probably not something that's super likely in our current political climate. So there are still other ways that we can think about it, I think, that might be more beneficial than what we have right now. One would be a workers' compensation type program. So workers' compensation is this thing that all employers have to buy workers' compensation insurance so that when their employee gets hurt on the job, there's a system that pays out. Now, there are lots of criticisms of that system. I am not saying that it is perfect by any means. But paid sick leave could be something similar, where all employers share that burden by paying some sort of insurance, you know, paying to have some sort of paid sick leave insurance, let's call it. And then when someone gets sick, they have up to a certain number of days that they get reimbursed through that system. So there's a more of a shared cost model where maybe smaller businesses don't feel like they take such a hit. Mm -hmm. So there are other creative ways for us to think about how to encourage both employers and workers to take and provide paid sick leave. Something that's been hovering over the conversation is 
this tension seemingly between immigrants' rights and workers' rights, and the fact that there are some immigrants who do have work authorization and some who don't. Where do those tensions arise from? To answer that question, we have to go back to, we have to go back quite far, actually. Yeah. But, and most people are very surprised to hear this. Before the 1980s, we had no law that restricted who employers could hire. They could hire someone that was a native-born worker, an immigrant who had immigration documentation, and somebody who had no documentation. There was no law against that. And then in the 80s and the 90s, we saw, and let me just back up for a minute. At that time, pre these laws, what many historians and sociologists documented is this phenomenon called circular migration. Mm-hmm. Circular migration patterns were where people, you know, many, many from Mexico, but some other Latin American, South American, Central and South American countries, too, but mostly Mexico, people would come to the United States for work. And they were mostly single men at mm-hmm. the time, we're talking about the 50s and, you know, 60s and before. And they would work and then they would go back to their towns in Mexico and they, you know, with their families, and they bring that money to their families and to their towns. And then when the border started getting uh, militarized in the 80s, it cut off that circulation, that circular pattern, because people had to come north for work because they had already always for decades relied on that work, but then they'd get stuck and they couldn't come back. I mean, even if they wanted to come back, because if they went back to Mexico, they would not be able to come back north. And so that is part of this story. And then in the mid 80s, in 1986, we passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And that is the first time ever in our nation's history that we made it required that people have something called work authorization Mm. in order to be hired. And really the law is directed at employers. There's no question. It says, employer, you have to do this. You know, everybody who's had a job here knows. E-Verify or I-9, you know, there, there are different ways of doing it. You have to go through that verification process to make sure the person has documentation before you hire them. And the reasoning behind that law for the people who are proponents of it was that immigrants are taking jobs from native-born workers. Now, Ruth Milkman has shown subsequently, decades later through her research, that that's not the case. Right. Most of these workers, the jobs they were coming to do were jobs that native-born workers didn't want, agricultural sector, meatpacking sector, cleaning sector, and now long-term care sector we've been talking about. But they passed the law anyway. And and the reason why the law was passed with significant bipartisan support was because it also had a giant amnesty provision. So it granted amnesty to a large number of people. And that's why you had both both sides of the aisle on board for that law. But what that law did is it really contributed, if not created, the shadow workforce. It just drove it underground. Because employers, of course, continued to hire people without documentation. But now these people were in a much more vulnerable position. So this tension that you're talking about between immigration enforcement, the way I talk about in the paper is that there's this tension ever since IRCA between immigration enforcement and workers' rights. Mm -hmm. Because people started, I think the thinking after IRCA became... Well, if you're not documented, why should you have access to workers' rights? Why should you have access to paid sick leave? Why should you have access to? And like I said, some workers themselves have that feeling. Um, and the answer is actually a really simple one. Well, there's two answers, kind of the more morality-based answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't want people to be exploited. We don't want to create a you know, second 
cast citizenship in this country. I mean, we haven't already, but, you know, we don't want to foster that. Do we want everybody to have those same workplace rights? We we don't want to say to employers, oh, yeah, discriminate away, you know, on, on this subset of people. Um, go ahead. Sexual harassment's fine if they're not documented. No, we morally don't want to do that. But the other reason, which is a very sort of reason that goes to the heart of IRCA is, look, the whole point behind IRCA was you wanted to encourage employers to hire people with work authorization. If you say that undocumented folks don't get workers' rights, then unscrupulous employers, that's who they're going to hire because it's cheaper to hire them. They don't have to pay the minimum wage. They don't have to pay them overtime. So we didn't want to create that moral hazard for employers where they could actually make more money by hiring people who are not documented because the very point of IRCA was hire people who have documentation, hire people who are native born or, you know, here uh, with immigration documentation. So you can see how IRCA sort of created this tension and then it got worse. Uh, The Supreme Court made it worse in 2002. There was a case called Hoffman Plastic. Oh, right. Yes. And in this case, what happened is this worker was, uh, he was, unauthorized. He didn't have work authorization. He was hired anyway by his employer. And I will say the employer said, well, we didn't know he was undocumented because he showed us some documentation. Wink, wink, you know, yeah. you know, is kind of the way wink, wink, nod, nod is how that works. Most of these employers know full and well that the documentation they're being shown is not, you know, is not verifiable, but whatever. He's so, entitled to his story. <laughs> yes, the employer's entitled to his story. But many people, including Professor Michael Wishley, who runs the workers' rights, uh, or for many years ran the workers' rights clinic, and I think he's still involved at Yale, has a piece where he says, you know, it's really hard to believe that this employer had no idea that they hired this worker. Yeah. But anyway, they did hire him. And then he started engaging in unionizing in the workplace and the employer terminated him. There's another law called the National Labor Relations Act mm-hmm. that makes that a no-no. If somebody's trying to organize their workplace and unionize their workplace, if you fire them in a retaliatory manner, in other words, you're firing them for that activity, then they have a claim. So this worker brought a claim against the company saying, hey, I, you fired me for this reason that was retaliatory. And the only remedy under the National Labor Relations Act, I'm getting a little bit legally into the weeds, but the only thing you can ask for when you sue somebody for that violation is for back pay. Back pay is that amount of money you would have made had you not been fired. Basically, I'm just going to very, very much summarize in a nutshell what the Supreme Court said was, well, he shouldn't have been working to begin with because he didn't have work authorization. So if we award him back pay, we're really flying in the face of IRCA. Okay, meanwhile, IRCA says nothing about employment and labor law mm. at all. In fact, the legislative history behind IRCA takes great pains to say we don't want workers' rights at all to be impacted by this. This is something employers have to be doing. Wow. But the court, of course, as we know now, selectively looked at the history that they wanted to look at, uh, that current court at the time, and they said, nope, he can't have a remedy. So basically, he has a right without a remedy. Mm. And this really created panic within the workers' rights community because they start, everyone started thinking, oh my goodness, are we not going to be able to have any workers' rights, any labor rights? Thankfully, no other courts have applied that reasoning. I shouldn't say no other courts. Very few courts have applied that reasoning to other laws, like minimum wage, for example, or like overtime. Employers have certainly tried to argue it. Like, well, you shouldn't get minimum wage because you shouldn't have been working here to begin with. So the courts have said, no, 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 you hired this person. They work for you. You pay the minimum wage. And for the reasons that I said earlier, you don't want to incentivize employers hiring undocumented workers. That's totally conflicts with what uh, IRCA's purpose was. So anyway, that is why that tension exists. 
and it's existed for a very long time. And that is why I really wanted to look at paid sick leave as a way out of that tension. Because as you said earlier, paid sick leave is about this communal concept where everybody benefits. It's not just workers benefiting and it's not employers benefiting. It's everybody and the public also. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That was really, really informative. How would shifting to a collective well-being framework help reduce these tensions that we've identified between immigration enforcement and workers' rights? It's my hope that after COVID, we can see how we're all connected to one another. And if we don't ensure that the most vulnerable, let's just say workers, but vulnerable populations, if we can't ensure that those people have things like paid sick leave, then we're ultimately hurting our everyone else. Everyone else gets harmed in the process. And again, I know I keep bringing it up, but it's such a good example. Long-term care setting is the perfect example of this. We're all going to be impacted if we can't ensure safe care for our loved ones. Um, and, and I guess this is also true in the just healthcare setting mm-hmm. in general. So... I guess I'm hoping that if we can shift this notion of collective well-being, then we'll have employers and workers and maybe uh, on a larger level policymakers willing to ensure that these most vulnerable and marginalized workers also benefit from things like paid sick leave. The last question I had, I guess, very last question that I've been asking all the interviewees this season is, what is something that is inspiring you lately? I like to leave on a positive note because a lot of times I do talk about topics that might dampen the mood, but I want people to leave feeling rejuvenated. So what is something that is inspiring you to stay committed to the fight for immigrant workers' rights? That is a really easy question. It's it's the workers themselves. So I'll go back to this interviewing project that I did with a, I should mention with, uh, I have a colleague and a co-author who did this work with me. Her name is Tara Sklar, Professor Tara Sklar, and she's our health law professor at the University of Arizona. She and I spent the last two years doing qualitative interviews with these nursing home aide who are immigrant women. And we spent hours, right, talking to these women, hearing their stories, some of which were really horrific. But At the end of it, all of these women would tell us, do you know what? I still really loved the work I was doing. Mm. I felt so dedicated to the people that I was caring for. And I want to keep doing this work because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I am contributing to our community, to the people that I live amongst. And so listening to that, like after they had marched up this parade of horribles that they had been through, they would always end on that note of optimism, of gratitude that they could be here engaging in this work, that they could take their kids to school, that they could be in a place where they didn't fear daily violence against them. They and their kids can walk on the street. I mean, so to to listen to someone who's been through so much hardship say that overwhelmingly their experience has been positive and they're grateful and that they want to continue doing this really hard labor. Mm -hmm. This is hard physical labor. They want to be here doing it and they want to do it for the good of America. They want to do it for the good of America and Americans. So that's um, something that's super inspiring, humbling. (laughs) Yes. 
Well, Shafali, thank you so much for coming and talking about your newest article. Hopefully I'll have you back on the podcast again when your next article comes out or your next book. <laughs> That's very kind of you. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Bye, Kachimbonas. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, Becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps the podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Kachimbonas! <laughs>